0: Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview.
1: Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, we're joined by Chris Dupal. Thanks so much for joining us today, Chris. We're looking forward to chatting with you. Um, if you could start by just telling our listeners uh, about yourself, a little bit who you are and what you do.
2: Sounds good. Hi, everyone. It is, uh, first of all, thank you to both of you to be part of this podcast. Uh, I got a chance to listen to a few of these, and I'm just, I do want to start with asking Scott, are we going to get a dad joke at the end of this podcast? I-
0: I think so. Yeah. Okay, so all right,
2: because because that was the highlight of some of the, the the one podcast I heard. That dad joke was, was really strong. Now,
0: seriously, all my right. name is Chris. We'll, we'll see what we can do for you.
2: All right, you're going to have to <laughs> figure one out for me. Uh, again, my name is Chris Tubal, and uh, I've spent about 30 years in social work. I come from a social work background. Uh, last 20 years or so have been working with Adult Protective Services and providing training and consultation uh, for the professionals that are out there investigating abuse and neglect and exploitation of older adults and people with disabilities. Uh, my current role is I, I spent about 20 years at Temple University, and then my current role is I'm working with the National Adult Protective Services Association, running a new program called the National APS Training Center. It's not launched quite yet, but we're hoping very soon it will be launched uh, to provide training to the professionals that do the work of Adult Protective Services throughout the country. So that's a bit about a bit about me.
1: And Chris has a ton of great experience and we've been fortunate to work on some projects with Chris and just really wanted him to come on today to talk more about sort of what's going on in the field because uh, he's an expert in the field of Adult Protective Services and training. So Chris, give us a little bit of an idea of what's, what's going on right now and what our listeners should be aware of for this issue with folks um, going through investigations with Adult
2: Protective Services? Yeah, the field is, is a really exciting field right now um, because we are seeing some of the first federal funding uh, come into the field, which is allowing the whole um, profession of protective services to evolve. Sometimes we say we're about 10, 20 years behind Child Protective Services. And so we've got a ton of people out that are out there that are dedicated and focused to this work. but. You can only do so much without support and funding. And so we are, I like to say a lot, we are at an unprecedented time in adult protective services because we're finally seeing some money come in, which is giving people the opportunity to think outside the box. Uh, These professionals get themselves in some really interesting situations. And so they need all the resources that they can get. So as a profession, we're kind of seeing ourselves evolve and We're seeing ourselves challenged as to what are those best practices that we should be implementing, not only at the state level or the local level, but also the national level. What are those consistent things that we need to be doing for people who have been abused, neglected or exploited, who have a disability, who are are an older adult and thinking through how we make those things consistent, regardless of whether it happens in Pennsylvania, Idaho, Tennessee, wherever that is, that people who have been victimized have a chance at at justice, both through the protective service system, and then sometimes in the protective service system, working with law enforcement to make those referrals to see if prosecution or even civil recovery in some cases is possible in these situations.
1: So what I hear you saying is a lot of things are good things going on right now throughout the country, too. So there's a call for some consistency because you're talking about some of that national funding maybe helping with that. And then this multidisciplinary team approach, which I know we talk a lot about yes. here um, you know, at MCG, too, with all populations, but really law enforcement, adult protective prosecution, working together, having those resources and really making sure we're serving people well.
2: Absolutely, and there's a lot of great work already happening at the local level, and what we want to start doing is saying, okay, this works here, how can this work over here as well, and learning those lessons from each other, and so that those local best practices can become national best practices.
1: That's great. Good. So what are the things that are happening in training right now that you think are going to really help make that happen, Chris?
2: Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, We're really trying to look at a national curriculum that will be available free of charge to all protective services to kind of set that consistent uh, baseline, if you will, of core training that protective service investigators need and can utilize. Obviously, a lot of our states have effective training as well that they are already doing. So from my perspective in my new role, I'm not only looking at the national training and kind of saying, what can we do, but also what's working in certain states. Uh, We have a lot of work to do in areas like interviewing, which is, I know, a theme in your podcast, interviewing. uh, How do we assess risk in these situations? How do we keep our investigators safe? As in every field, this pandemic has introduced us to new areas. And yeah. so we're, we're asking ourselves some tough questions. And I think we've talked about it in the past, but how do you do an effective investigative interview over the phone if that's all that you can do? How do you do one through a mask? Uh, even if you are out in the home and you've got an older adult that may have limited hearing abilities and tries is trying to read your lips underneath that mask and so how do you I know Stacy this is a popular topic of yours how do you build rapport with a mask on Um, and, and so yeah we're trying to keep up with the pace of how the profession is evolving and how the needs of people who have been victimized are evolving those are becoming more intense the types of scams, the types of financial crimes being perpetrated against people with disabilities and older adults are becoming more complicated. And like I said, I'm a social worker by background, so I barely balance my own checkbook, let alone do a good job investigating and pulling up Excel spreadsheets and formulas. But a lot of our protective service investigators now need to get into these cases that can involve trusts, they can involve annuities. And they're thinking, okay, I've got to figure out the flow of the money here. It's really challenging and challenging to keep up with the training needs.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, you said so many things. There's like 50 topics I want to talk about now that that you said it. Stacy was giving me the evil eye, like you know, she was She's, you're comfortable with silence, Stacy. You don't yeah. have to like give yeah. me the evil eye over yeah, here. Yeah, I've been stuff. I've
2: been accused of being wordy in the word mm-hmm. department. So if 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 I'm a little too wordy, Scott, you gotta you give me the evil eye as well.
0: No, no, no! You're doing great, man. I, I, uh, I could listen to you all day. Honestly, I mean that. I, I think you have so much to say. I think you're super talented, and we're really glad that you're allocated some time to talk with us here on our on our little show. Truthfully, so I appreciate. So my grandmother,
2: here. my grandmother talked to you about all those things.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, she sent money. It's fine. Yeah, okay. she, she,
2: she she learned how to do Venmo the other day. So I'm glad to, I'm glad oh, it all well, worked out. Yeah, definitely. Uh,
0: you know in my experience uh, i I've, I've trained i'd say i, had, I don't know thousands of yeah. aps workers in yep. various parts of the country and always enjoy it. always a great group of people hungry for knowledge hungry for training and well in my experience the training is really inconsistent so you got a lot of people doing good work yep uh, but their experiential sets are vast yes. but the the training and especially advanced training is is really inconsistent would you agree with that want to modify that
2: yeah I, I would agree with that from a kind of national perspective and that's what we want to we want to work on there are certainly states that i think have really developed training programs for their protective services so in some like texas texas has a, a right. really strong protective services training program i hate to single out one state because oh, we work with all of example. them it was an but example not, no, yeah, but Texas has an excellent, excellent program, California has an excellent program. I think one of the tough things with protective services is we're not really social workers and we're not really law enforcement either. We're kind of in this middle ground of this civil entity that's doing investigations assessing risk, and then trying to put services in place. So I've always struggled with, and, and Scott, I've, I've heard you train, and, and you know, I think you're an excellent trainer and, and a good fit, but I've struggled in the topic of interviewing for years in what trainer to bring in, because I can bring some licensed clinical social worker who will train APS like they have 15 clinical sessions of 50 minutes each and talk about spending three or four sessions building rapport. APS investigators have to build that rapport in a couple minutes or less oftentimes. I can also bring in law enforcement who at times will train like that APS investigator is also wearing a badge. (laughs) And and, and I have a good friend who's done a lot of training for us. and, And we were training for APS one time. And one of the APS investigators raised their hand and said, well, what if the alleged uh, perpetrator isn't complying with your interview? And Joe, uh, I'll call him out on this, Joe kept, he kept trying and kept giving the good answers. And then he got frustrated because this APS investigator wouldn't let up. And Joe just finally slams his hand down on the podium and says, you get out your handcuffs, and you throw them down there and say, if you don't participate in this, I'm taking you. i like, Joe, they don't have handcuffs. They don't have handcuffs. So <laughs> that's not a piece of equipment they get. Yeah. And if they and do have handcuffs,
0: they should not be bringing them
2: out professionally. Oh right. Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> true, true, true. Um, no and, judgment. And no judgment. Again, we work with social workers in the APS, we work with law enforcement oftentimes in these interviews. but it is a unique profession. So we're still trying to figure out what are our best models. So I think to your question, that can lead to the inconsistency at times, because we're still trying to figure out what are our best practices. We're borrowing some from law enforcement, we're borrowing some from social work, we're borrowing some from lots of other disciplines, but still trying to figure out what is it Using interview, interviewing as an example, what is the best rapport building skill when I'm in a home that has newspapers stacked up from 1955, who has 17 cats, who I can't sit down on the furniture, or I will have to change my clothes if I sit down on the furniture afterwards, and they have they're using oxygen, and I see the cigarette pack right beside the oxygen tank we're trying to figure out what those models look like. So I would agree that there can be some inconsistency, but there again, there's also this evolving of our profession to figure out what is and what are our best practices,
0: if that makes sense. It does, I think it's actually, it's quite fair. And, and again, I, I said it not that less as a criticism, just more as, a, as a, sort of a, an area of like, uh, you know, do, that you need validation, but validating really the need of this national center is to try yeah. and figure some of these things out because it's very different in the child world. Like, honestly, nobody gives a shit about adults like, compared to kids. Like people aren't banging on the doors of Capitol Hill saying we need more funding for this. Uh, maybe as more and more people get older, they will, but you know, the, the people with disabilities, um, adults, like when, when I was a professor and I ran programs and the, I ran programs for children. I ran programs for adults. The volunteer pools and mm-hmm. enthusiasm was one tenth of it was for yes. kids. Everybody wanted to work with the kids. The, the kids, and then it, when it came to adults, um, it, it was just much much harder getting volunteers. And and I and I say that because like of course people give a shit about adults. It's just. It's that you feel that sometimes. And Maddie said, I can say shit all I want, apparently. Okay, producers. all right,
2: all right. You I mean, can too, if
0: you'd like to, if your grandma yeah, says Yeah, we'll,
2: we'll, we'll see how warmed up you get me. Okay, <laughs> good. But you, you know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. The,
0: the energy and outrage when an older adult is, is you know, abused is nowhere near that, like if a child is abused. And, and I'm, not, I'm not even arguing that it needs to be equal. It's the resources. The, the multidisciplinary work is nowhere near what it is in, in the child world. Again, I say less as a criticism and more as a, you know, the, as you continue to evolve and with the National Center, and hopefully there's more work. As you know, we work with the group, the advocacy centers of Ohio, and that's kind of a first of its kind type of thing. And we could talk about that. But I don't know, you can react to any of that, or just Stacy can jump in
2: yeah yeah no i mean and, and stacy did you want to jump in on that one i mean i i definitely have some thoughts no i want to hear
1: your thoughts i have a clarifying question
2: but i want to hear your thoughts. okay first. okay so I, i'm going to editorialize briefly and say we still live in a very ageist society um and i always use the example of you go to your local gas station convenience store and if you've got a little jug or container there taking donations of an eight-year-old who has lost their hair from chemo, that is going to fill up a lot faster than the 75 or 80-year-old with that same picture who has lost their hair with chemo. I still think the unfortunate reality, and this is going to sound harsh, but the unfortunate reality is there's still some uh, view well, that older adults are supposed to die anyway um and yeah. certainly that's not my view and i, I don't yeah, know if my, my, if my
0: affirmation was the concept not that yeah they need to yeah. die you know, yeah no
2: so. no 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 i get it but and i you may have to edit this part out but it's not meant to be political but we even saw a shift in this pandemic when the pandemic went from primarily affecting older adults to starting to affect younger adults. Uh, We saw a shift in the focus and we saw a shift. And so I think the same thing is happening there with victimization uh, of older adults. And and you know it from your work of people with disabilities. Um, The value that we put on their lives is is not the same that we put on children. And And I... I think that is something we've got to work hard on uh, as advocates um, and as a society to say no, that that the experience of victimization is something that we need to work hard to alleviate regardless of age, regardless of abilities, um, regardless of how and where and when it happens. We need to work hard to alleviate um, that risk of that experience.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree, and it's. I'm glad that I said, hey, go ahead, because my clarifying question <laughs> is a great segue to what you just said. So, Chris, I'm curious, I know that you, you talked about, you know, ages and so very much being an issue. What other biases and myths are out there that you guys are encountering in the adult productive profession that you think our listeners should be aware of and maybe even be checking in with themselves or with their their colleagues at all?
0: Oh, I feel like I could shout out like 10 of them. <laughs> I know. Oh, go ahead.
2: Yeah, give, give me one, Scott. Let me see what you oh, got.
0: so... So all I hear I hear these a lot. Like, well, so I'm just gonna go into sex because we talk about sex a lot, you know, it's okay. our it's our okay. with the, with everything. So older people don't have sex or if they're yeah. having you know, too much sex or sex with more than one person, like there's got to be exploitation there or all adults with dementia are hypersexual. You know, there's, there's, there's some of those that that come out. So we can always talk about that. Let's talk. Yeah.
2: I had a friend that was a nursing home administrator that used to say when the nursing homes are rocking, don't come a knocking, Um, (laughs) you know? And and so, yeah, that's certainly one, but I want to go to one that Both of you have really made a centerpiece of of your work, which is this concept of quote unquote nonverbal or this concept of of I can't interview someone. Um, There is really a myth there about capacity and cognitive capacity and I think our protective service colleagues know it pretty well but even when they're interacting. With others, this myth that the that, that capacity is on a dichotomy of I either have it or I don't. Interviewing somebody at 10 a.m. can be very different, particularly for older adults, than interviewing somebody at four o'clock. Um, interviewing somebody, especially in a facility setting where the routine is pretty structured, interviewing somebody right before lunch or right after lunch or right before medication or right after medication can make a huge difference. Um, I've stolen uh, a lot in my training from you, Scott, uh, or, or liberally uh, literary license. I don't know what it is, but I have, yeah. I have, I, I have taken a few things uh, from your training. But one of the things I, I, I try to make the point of is there were people that were labeled, not only as nonverbal and Scott, this is yours, but of what you've talked about, but as quote unquote, not being in there. Like it's not only that they can't communicate, but, and we've seen time and with people with disabilities, people with autism, people with whatever, they were in there. We just were failing to understand what they were saying. I'm reluctant, and and you will probably have some medical doctors write into the podcast after this and say this guy didn't have any clue what he was talking about. But I'm reluctant. that's okay. Half the time we
0: know. Okay. (laughs) Um, I'd like to see those letters
2: once you get them. Um, But I'm not not comfortable with saying people with dementia or Alzheimer's, we now say neurocognitive disorder, who aren't able to communicate aren't in there any, any longer, particularly from a victimization standpoint. They still have a story to tell. How we use their story, how we use how we weigh that evidence in the end may be very affected by the disease process. But I see one of the myths that I see, particularly in investigations and in doing this is is they don't have anything reliable because they yeah, have dementia humanity. or because they, they 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 can't communicate and and for me, that is uh, you know I had um. I had a case uh, one time where a a woman, all she could do, and I can't do it, I I just realized I can't really do it on the podcast, but uh, she had her her hands kind of to her pretty tight. And she had her one hand in a little bit of a oval and her other finger was just going in and out of the oval. And if you didn't pay attention to it, it just looked like she was doing something nonverbal turns out she was communicating to us. What we would later find out is that she was sexually assaulted. That was her communication. She had, she had pronounced dementia, um, but that was her communication. And the other facts of the case would lead that that was what she was trying to communicate to us uh, every time we ask questions about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think so, so many things like that's why we have our, in our pre-interview considerations, in all of our models deals with some of those things that the timing before meds, after meds, you know, you, you yeah. gather a lot of that information that, that really affects it. But you, you, you touched on such a, a really important point of due to somebody's underlying neuropathology, yeah, it, they, we may be in a s- situation where somebody might not be able to communicate at all versus they just don't speak. Right. Right. And You got to try though. But if we go in with this bias already that this person has dementia, this person has intellectual disabilities, oh, even worse. Yes. Oh, they have dementia and schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder and dementia and intellectual disability. That, you know, the bias is just so far. So, really having those skills and confidence to be able to attempt to communicate, even though at some point there are some folks in end stage that might not communicate at all right but man that window of people who you can communicate and get useful and reliable information from right. is thousand times wider than people think it is
2: yes agreed and
0: any i'll i have happy to anybody to write in and challenge that yeah
2: okay, and
0: I
1: think it's it, just it's a matter to of. Uh, not accepting that. And I think that that's one of the things we talk about in training too. Is that what you were going to say, Chris? Uh, I, so, exactly. Keep going. Yeah. So it's, you know, we hear non-interviewable or doesn't speak. Yep. And then, you know, there's no there's no other question. So yep. for, you know, investigators, adult protective workers, whomever, to be able to say, what does that mean though? Or how, you know, how does this person communicate? There has to be a way they get their needs met every day. And it's up to us to investigate a little further and not just accept that, that label.
0: Yeah, yeah. Two things. One, people will say that before they even see the individual or talk to the individual yes that shit gets written down and then the other thing is is and i i i think it's really important for adult protective services child protective services law actually everybody not everything we get is going to be used right either because it's not legally defensible or it's just never going to a court however especially APS and CPS we have safety decisions to make yes so gathering information even if it's not going to be legally defensible we want it to be reliable certainly right. yes yeah. but if something in most of these cases are not going to see the light of day in court we right. still have to gather reliable information because we have safety decisions to make and or support and or uh, plans of care to
2: to address and just, at the end of the day
0: it's not up to any of us whether a case yeah. is going to go to trial or not right. it's yeah. up to the and,
2: district attorney and just two points on that, and just again for your audience is, is I mean, and that is the role of protective services. You said that well, Scott. It's not the role of protective services necessarily to gather information to make this a, a case that can be prosecuted. We want them to do the things that doesn't, that don't mess up prosecution down the road. We want them to handle things, but their primary purpose is how do I keep this person safe? The yep. second thing is Whenever we talk about this in training or whenever we have these types of conversations, I'm always flashback to one of the only things I remember a long time ago in undergraduate, Uh, I had a social work professor that said there were no difficult clients, there were only social workers who had failed to get through to them. And now I've met some difficult clients along the way, so I don't know if I could. But I've used that now with I've communication. Had an hour conversation about somebody's cat once. That yeah, yeah. That. But I've now, I've now brought that over to communication. There are no people who can't communicate. There are only professionals who have failed to understand what they were trying to communicate. And at some level, that I, I feel like that's the model, the mindset that we have to go in with. Yeah. If we automatically put the burden on the person we're interviewing. To communicate in a way that we can effectively and easily understand. Yeah, we're going to write off a lot of those interviews where, and you both have been in them, where it takes a lot of work on the interviewers part to understand to get the little pieces that are there so that's kind of our approach when for protective services when we're talking about interviewing.
0: Yeah, I, I... I have uh, so many so Stace, were you going to say something. I have so many thoughts on that. It made me think of a. That's why we say communication is is a two way street. So it's not like they can't communicate. It's more right. accurate to say, well, we're not able to communicate, or I'm not able to communicate with them. Right. Uh, the I just wanted to make a comment. I had a saying I used to say. I don't think I've said it in the training in a while. Well, let and me
2: write it down <laughs> so I can use it in training in the future. <laughs> you, can,
0: you can use it. It's about it's about sort of gathering information. And I think I've, I've used to say, it's not up to us whether a case will go to trial or not. We want to gather information in a way that it's not because of us, the case doesn't. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. And there's information out there. Are you up for the challenge to get it? That's another yeah. thing.
1: Right. Yeah, I say that a lot in training, too, because I'm competitive, right? I'm a very competitive nature. So if somebody says, oh, this person can't be interviewed, I'm like a, hey, watch me. Let, you know, let me try. Who says they can't be? So I think that that serves me a little bit in this work, right? Because I'm going to be probably the last person to give up or think about giving up. Um, in that way but I wanted to go back to Chris to something you (laughs) said about
0: you're traumatizing uh, me because I'm thinking about (laughs) the Titans I'm thinking about the Buffalo Bills
1: yeah Stacey's
0: a Bills fan I'm a
1: little competitive a little upset with with our
0: quarterback right now sorry don't let me Maddie you got to get me
2: back I need guardrails here well should I ask you also about the halftime show um and and, no never mind um
1: so one of the things that you know circling it back to a couple things think is a difficult client. I I love that. But I also think part of what makes it so hard to standardize some of the training is that every investigation is so unique, right? Every individual is so unique. And I think that that's really the key to training that we, you know, we try to highlight it in all of ours. It's like, you can't go in thinking the same thing's going to work with everybody. You've really got to address that individual. So it's the consistency of training by telling people that your investigations won't all be consistent, right? So it's a little bit, it's a little complicated, but really getting people into that creative mindset. And giving them the courage and, you know, empowering them to really continue to try to, to serve that person in front of them.
2: Yeah. And there's two things I often say in training. I think this goes for whatever discipline members of your audience are coming from. Interviewing is an art. It's not a science. And that doesn't mean that there isn't research out there and there isn't practices that we can start to employ, but it's an art because we're dealing with people. The second thing I always say is, is, and I always set it up by saying it's going to be super encouraging and empowering is that you're going to screw up and probably screw up badly every single interview that you do at some point. There is no such thing as a perfect interview. There is no no such thing as an interview that just goes flawlessly um and and we've talked a little bit about uh, the technique of enhanced cognitive interviewing in the past in our discussions and one of the things that enhanced cognitive interviewing does as a kind of perspective is it flips parts of the interview from the interviewer being an interviewer to a facilitator And I really kind of like that switch of language and switch of words because it takes off this pressure of, I've got to ask the exact right questions as opposed to I'm trying to facilitate the the witness as my subject matter expert on on their own story to facilitate that conversation. And so, but you're right. It's every person is different. Every circumstance is different. And for protective services, they're oftentimes dealing with about a bazillion variables. I mean, you're doing investigations with cats literally sometimes crawling on you. Um, you're doing investigations- It's where in you. Yeah, where, where you're, you're, we tell, we tell every, every jurisdiction across the country, you're supposed to investigate and do that interview with the person who may have been abused alone but mm-hmm. you're in homes by yourself, trying to separate out who you think might be the person that did it, trying to get them to go to a different room and still make that person feel safe. And, and it's just, it's it's a huge challenge for our protective service folks.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some of the things you're saying, right, are consistent throughout, no matter what age group you're, you're working with, right? That yeah. child can encounter some of yep. the same things. But one of the things that I'm wondering about, and going back to the myths a little bit. Yeah. Discuss, yeah, One of the things that I, I often hear for professionals who don't know a lot about adult protective is that they think it's the same as child protective. And I wonder yeah. if we can just talk a little bit about what those differences are. I think that could be really helpful.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. So I I, I would say the number one difference is the concept of autonomy and the concept of the ability, as long as I have the ability to make an informed decision, I have the right to live at risk. Um, I'll set up this story by saying, I started in hospital social work many years ago and in Pennsylvania, This is not true for most states, but in Pennsylvania hospital social workers are not mandatory reporters of elder abuse. There's a whole history. If you're listening to this from other states, more than likely you are a mandatory reporter if you are a hospital social worker, but in Pennsylvania um, it was not the case. And one of my first cases of elder abuse came in, of course, on a Friday afternoon, and it came in. We, this was back long before electronic documentation. Uh, we get these little pink sheets that were our consult sheets, and it said bedside commode and social issues. And so I went in and you know I was already checked out. It was a Friday afternoon. I, started, I said, okay, I can get you this bed psych mode. I see that there are some social issues here. Do you want to talk to me about them? And I didn't really want him to talk to me about them. Fortunately, he did because over the next hour, he would tell me what would turn out to be a very accurate story about how his sons would not only yell at him while he was in con- when he was incontinent, but not only beat on him when he was incontinent but would also stick his face and rub it in his own urine and feces, thinking it would cure him of his incontinence.
0: Like if he was a
2: dog. Or like if he was would a dog. You, we don't you, even you use just, that for pets. Anymore. Yeah, I would say that's not something we should yeah, do with yeah, dogs. Yeah. But what he said to me was don't tell anybody because my sons, for the most part, take care of me. This happens three, four times a year. It happens when they're drunk. And they keep me out of, his words, not mine, the parking lot to the graveyard. And for him, that was the nursing home. He essentially was willing to exchange beatings to be able to live at home. He was willing to be able, or he was not only willing, he wanted to live at risk of future victimization. Again, I feel like I need to put the asterisks here. In many of the states that your folks are listening, this would be a mandatory report for them. So I don't wanna confuse you in that. But even for our protective service professionals, once they receive that report, they still, as long as that person has the ability to make an informed decision, cannot go in and do involuntary interventions to remove that risk. Adults and older adults have the right to make poor decisions, and they have the right to make decisions that, that leave them in at-risk situations. And so part of protective ser- adult protective services is a bit different than child protection. And I understand this also tries to keep the family together, maintain the child in the home, not saying that we don't. But ultimately, somebody can live at that risk, and, and part of adult protective service's role is to defend that. That's probably the one real major difference. And then the other difference is um, when you're dealing with an 87-year-old versus a seven-year-old, that 87-year-old has 87 years of, to elude professionals just like you invasive questions. They have a lot more tricks up their sleeve in order to try to get you out of their house uh, as quickly as possible. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah that, was, that was great, Chris.
0: You know, it's interesting. We have um, people from a lot of different countries who listen as well. And uh, it would be interesting if anybody wants to shoot us an email, we would be happy to uh, really have you on the podcast and talk about some of these issues uh, and what what it's like for you and your country and any differences or similarities, because I think we we might have a lot to learn uh, from each other. So I wanted to throw that out there. Also just wanted to add to your uh comment about adults and older adults have the right to make you know decisions that we label poor so do adults with disabilities yeah yeah, um, yeah. They have a right to yep. yeah no i know you know that i was just adding that in there okay all right <laughs> it wasn't education i was just that <laughs> clarifying was like, yes time. scott and, uh, i
2: know i've heard your presentations i'm aware you were.
0: you're learned you're learning
2: i uh, the yeah but that, that's the
0: bit so, so yeah the the years of experience uh and i think the issue of consent, not just sexual consent, consent to waste your money on things yep. or well, to spend money on things that people would label wasting. Yep. I have a, a friend who has a sibling with an intellectual disability, as yep. uh, I have a brother with an intellectual disability. And he was saying, yeah, his sibling uh, just spends money on these silly like cars or like these replica things. And I said, well, what do you waste? What do you spend money right, on that? People right. would think it's stupid or foolish, you know? Right. And he's like, yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, we're not the best. Uh, if something happened to, you know, God forbid to my brother, I would not be the best investigator because I'm not going to yeah, be yeah, unbiased. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we have those, those things, but yeah, we, we all make poor decisions. And I remember a case I had with an adult, uh, woman, intellectual disabilities, and she liked to have sex with like, lots of people and sometimes more than one and people's values get embedded in that it's like okay well that may be something i'm not interested or you're not interested in but if she's consenting to sex and has the capacity to consent to sex then she could have sex with whomever and how many ever uh, that she wants whether you like that decision or not and i think so individual morality and value judgment comes in but also and I would just I'm labeling it clinically making that determination does that person have the capacity to make those decisions are they informed decisions uh, is is I could see as a particular uh, challenge yeah, yeah so
1: Decision unless someone says they don't, and that requires a lot, you know, a long process, court, so, yeah, it requires court a court and long processes that determine in the United
0: States it requires a court. Right.
1: So that's it's it. not, you know, as easy as though this person has a disability or they've reached a certain age or you know they have been diagnosed with a neurocognitive disorder, right? right? Like, there's something else that has to be there, and that's, I think, another one of the myths that's out there is you know, people of a certain age or diagnosis can't make decisions or shouldn't be allowed to make them, and that's just not true either,
2: yeah. And so, and I think that's a particularly challenge for our protective service professionals out there. In general, when they go in and investigate, they can fairly quickly, and most are dealing with a preponderant standard. So it just has to be more likely than not that it occurred. So oftentimes for investigations, they can pretty quickly, uh, you know, determine whether abuse, neglect, or to that standard occurred. What really becomes difficult is when that person says, no, I do not want the services to change this risk. And now that protective service professional also has to assess their ability to make an informed decision, to assess their capacity, uh, to assess their their ability to have that. I don't want to say have that right, but just have that ability to say, no, I don't want your protective services. You can go, you know, you can go take a hike and stick your protective services. Yeah. Well, I'll let your your (laughs) listeners fill in where they want them to stick the protective services. But how do I know that that person and, while we're talking mostly about victimization, you know, self-neglect cases and hoarding cases are an interesting one for our protective service folks because they also do those cases. Mm-hmm. But 80% of people who hoard will, it's a mental health diagnosis. It's not a cognitive capacity issue. And so they have, they have the complete cognitive capacity to say, no, I, I'm fine making this decision, even though our protective service folks have landlords calling them, have uh, the community calling them and saying, you have to do something about this. At the end of the day, if they have the ability to make those decisions, part of the protective service role is to defend that right to make those decisions.
1: Right. To advocate for what the person advocate.
2: wants. Advocate.
1: Yep. And like, those systems, like we've said. Yeah. 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 Great. Awesome. So what would be your, I guess, as we sort of Think about wrapping up. What would be your final? Oh, uh, we are not um, doing this for two
2: action. hours.
1: I mean, we could talk for days, Chris. You
2: know that. All right. um, what, what
1: would be your call to action to our listeners to say, you know, if someone says, "How can I make a difference for adult protective service workers and ultimately the people that they serve?" What what would your message be to them?
2: Yeah, this is going to sound very simple, but find out who your protective service folks are in your community. I, I find even in multidisciplinary environments, adult protective services are oftentimes a forgotten discipline and how valuable and important they are. So find out who, uh, who they are, find out how you could intersect and collaborate with your protective service folks. I oftentimes say protective services are the front line and the last line of defense. So if you've got uh, listeners from law enforcement, Talk about how you can collaborate. One area that we didn't talk about was trauma-informed approaches. Can we be doing single interviews with victims instead of protective services doing one victim and then five days later, when they refer it to law enforcement, doing another interview with that victim? We know from a trauma perspective, the damage that that can do. So finding out who those folks are, uh, supporting them, understanding their role these all may be simple things but on the other side of it it is really really critical in my mind that protective services be part of the puzzle that works together in communities states and across the country to interact and respond to people who allegedly have been victims of abuse neglect exploitation regardless of their whether they're 97, whether they're 37, year old, 37 years old with a disability, making them, being aware of who they are, how they can um, interact with the services that you provide, and then teaming up and figuring out how you can keep people in your communities safer at the end of the day and free from risk of abuse, neglect, exploitation. And that, that focus is not just on children, but as Scott was talking about earlier, we extend that to people with disabilities, and we even extend that to people at the oldest of ages, nearest to the end of their life. Uh, people have a right to end their life in a way that is safe and dignified, and I think it's on all of us to respond in a way that helps them to do that.
0: Yeah, there's
2: a there's a term called dignity of risk. Yeah. As
0: well. Um, well, this is this was awesome. We could talk all day, Chris. Yeah, thanks thanks Chris. so much. I do. I do have two dad jokes oh, if you
1: want man, i i was i, I to... was waiting
0: for the dad jokes
1: half for them scott i guess I you am. gotta I get them to okay
0: <laughs> what do you call 100 little sheep rolling down a hill a lamb slide <laughs> does he not let us does he
2: not let us guess at these?
1: Oh, no. i you don't get the answer
0: okay. no. all right a lamb slide very nice I'll,
2: good Give i'll, us I'll a let second. you answer
0: this one where do bad rainbows go i don't know prism that's a light <laughs> sentence
2: <laughs> that's horrific stacy why did you ask him for the dad joke like, uh, we have to have yeah. a better sign off <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe, we cool. maybe need to work on that one yeah okay. hey man thanks for your time hey thank you both for having me i really appreciate the opportunity
1: Thanks for listening. To learn more about the work being done by Model Consulting Group, visit our website, modelconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.